Hear the stories. Be motivated. Be inspired. Join us today. Voice America Influencers. Welcome to The Art of Significance with your host, Hall of Fame speaker, New York Times bestselling author, university professor, gold record songwriter, and award-winning athlete, Dan Clark. Get ready for engaging discussions with some of the most influential people in the world who will impart their wisdom, stories, and inspiration on why and how to achieve the level beyond success. Now here's your host, Dan Clark. Welcome, Dan Clark Nation. I shouldn't flatter myself. I appreciate you uh, tuning in each week. I've got loyal followers, uh, about 20 countries now tuning into this live broadcast. To remind all of you, it's an on-demand podcast that you can access anywhere in the world, anytime you feel like you need some inspiration, some provocative interviews with some extraordinary people. It's the Influencers Channel, and I take that word seriously. Today's show is going to be one of my most influential, one of my most spectacular shows since I've been on the air. I'll have two guests that will occupy the entire two-hour show format, two heroes in their own way, two extraordinary human beings who have achieved the level way beyond success and live lives of significance. Baseball, Major League Baseball superstar Dale Murphy, dear, dear friend of mine, and Medal of Honor, Congressional Medal of Honor recipient Ty Carter, who is also a friend of mine. You don't want to go anywhere, and I promise you're going to want to gather your friends and your coworkers and your colleagues and your your closest associates around your computer to listen to these interviews. I'm going to back out as much as I possibly can, ask provocative questions so we can get to the heart and soul of the character behind these two legitimate heroes, one a sports hero and a hero in life, and one a war hero and a hero in life. Because my first guest is Major League Baseball player Dale Murphy, let's talk baseball for a minute and how it relates to everyday life, especially achieving the level beyond success. So, Ted Williams, the the Major League Baseball superstar, Hall of Famer, legendary player for the Boston Red Sox, said that hitting a baseball is the toughest, it's the hardest, it's the most difficult thing to do in any sport. And for those of us who have played baseball and those of us who are students of the games of sport activity, sporting competition, I'm sure we'll agree because here you have a baseball thrown towards you from 60 feet, six inches away from the pitcher's mound. And if the ball is traveling 90 miles an hour, which is usually the low end of the speed demons of the, of the, the folks out there on the pitcher's mound who throw what we call high heat, a baseball coming towards you 60 feet, six inches away at 90 miles an hour appears in your eye. Your perception of that ball is the size of an aspirin. And you have less than one-tenth of one, less than one-tenth of one second to decide whether or not you're going to swing your bat at that ball. And your, your goal is to hit a round ball with a round bat and hit it squarely. Tough assignment. 
Let's relate baseball hitting to life and the difference between good and great, identifying it to be just a little bit of extra effort. What it means to have a 200 batting average simply means that you hit safely on base two out of 10 times up to bat. And for that, you make minimum salary. You're traded from team to team as often as a manager changes his dirty socks. No one knows your name. You're definitely a traveling uh, player and expendable for someone else who's coming in the league whose expectations of that individual are higher than yours. What does it mean to be a 300 hitter, to have a 300 batting average? Well, obviously, it means that you hit safely on base three out of 10 times up to bat. But for that, you are an, an, an extraordinary superstar. You make the television commercials. You have the endorsement deals. You're on your way to a Hall of Fame career, and you make maximum salary. The difference between a 200 hitter and a 300 hitter is only one in every 10 times up to bat. You hit safely on base one out of 10 times up to bat. And if you allow your 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 pitch count, as they call it, to go to full count, which is three balls and two strikes each time you're up to bat, the difference between a 200 hitter and a 300 hitter is one hit in every 60 pitches. That's six zero. One hit in every 60 pitches. The difference between an average player and an ap- absolute superstar in Major League Baseball. Wow, that transposes into our everyday life that the little teeny things really do make the, the difference. In one of my songs that I wrote, it's one of my better songs, it's called Pebble in the Shoe. And the premise of the lyric <clears throat> is a is a, 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 a story, if you will, a ballad about my dream of climbing the Grand Teton outside of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And when I put my climbing boots on and found the guide and signed up for this trek, what kept me from summiting that 14,000-foot mountain was not the giant boulders in the path. It was the pebble in my shoe. The biblical story of David killing, slaying Goliath, a giant of a man, a Philistine that, that, that towered over the young David. <clears throat> the story is about David showing up with a slingshot with a small gathering of stones no bigger than a pebble in my shoe. My point, it's the little things that make the diff, the big difference. But the inside things, the intangible qualities of an athlete, the intangible qualities of a superstar man in our society seem to be the small things that are never talked about. The three core values of the United States Air Force, integrity, service, commitment to excellence in all we do, are the seven core values of the United States Army, loyalty, duty, respect, service before self, honor, integrity, personal courage. For some reason, they don't come out when we start evaluating athletes and we watch those athletes on television or in person competing at the highest levels of the professional leagues. But what I'd like to suggest today as we get into both of my interviews is that when you see a superstar athlete like Dale Murphy on a field, you see more than just muscle and bone going through motion. You see more than a fast bat speed and a quickness of of, 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 of and, and running ability, a quickness of foot, a fleet of foot. What you see is hustle and second effort. 
and a burning desire to succeed and excel above the norm. And when we see these athletes, when we see these individuals, and they make what they do look so easy, obviously it's because of thousands and thousands of hours that have allowed them to make self-mastery permanent, that have allowed them to make winning personal, that have allowed them to make leadership automatic, which is what I talk about in my speeches as a Hall of Fame professional speaker. So as we get into these interviews, I want you to keep in mind not just the stats, not just the amazing stories that these two individuals will have an opportunity to share with us, but I want you to dig deep and and visualize the in-between-the-line stories that make these individuals extraordinary. As I go to commercial break and bring back my first guest, Dale Murphy, Major League Baseball superstar, drafted in the first round by the Atlanta Braves and played almost his entire career for the Braves before finishing up with the Philadelphia Phillies and the Colorado Rockies. Dale, affectionately known as around the league and by his teammates and fellow All-Stars as Murph, he's known as the youngest player in history, at least at the time, to win back-to-back MVP awards. He won two consecutive National League Player of the Year awards and was named to the National League All-Star team seven times five as a starter. Murph won five consecutive Gold Glove awards, which means he's also an extraordinary outfielder, four Silver Slugger awards, and he was named NL Player of the Month a record six times and was named the most feared hitter in the National League in a survey of pitchers back in his heyday. We're going to talk a little bit more about the awards he's received, but as we go to commercial break, let me just tell you this story before I bring him on the air. I'm speaking at the West Point Military Academy, famous West Point. And as I concluded speaking three times that day to all of the cadets, I'm given a ride back to the airport in New York by a young cadet who's a member of the West Point baseball team. He volunteered to drive me down. I'm a former athlete, not at Dale's level in any sense of the word, but I played for a long time and yeah, I guess volunteered. He wanted an intimate conversation. And as I'm driving down the, the road that evening in the dark, I said, so you're a baseball player. Who's your hero? Now, this is a millennial. Now, this is a young 21-year-old man in about 2013, maybe. Maybe 2012, maybe 2013. I said, who's your hero? He said, Dale Murphy, sir. I said, no, you're kidding me. He finished his career, I think, before you were even born. He goes, oh, no, 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 he's, a, he, he's my, my hero, and he's a hero to so many of us on the team. And I said, tell me. And he said, well, my, my buddy, my roommate, is now deployed in Afghanistan. And he had a picture, a poster of Dale Murphy hanging on our dorm wall. And he said he had a Dale Murphy card, a baseball trading card that he kept inside his baseball hat for good luck. And he was a center fielder, just like Dale Murphy. And he was a batting champion. And Dale Murphy was a 30-30 guy, which means he hit over 30 home runs and stole over 30 bases in the same season. And this young man did it at West Point. He knew everything about Dale Murphy and his career. And he said, Dale Murphy's trading card brought him good luck. 
And he said, sadly, when he was deployed to Afghanistan, his batting helmet was basically thrown in with the rest of them. His hat had worn thin that baseball trading card of Dale Murphy, and he went into harm's way, deployed downrange to fight the bad guys without his good luck charm of the Dale Murphy card that he wanted so badly to put in his helmet. And as soon as I heard that story, I teared up as I am right now. And I've had the privilege of knowing Dale Murphy for many years and watching him as a dad and as a husband, as a philanthropist and as a community activist and as an extraordinary businessman and a superstar motivational speaker and a volunteer coach in his community. But I had to call him and I said, Murph, I'm sorry it's so late, but I got to tell you this story. And what did Dale do? Of course, Dale said, give me this kid's name and his address, his contact information, and tell me how I can get him some stuff. Long story shorter, ladies and gentlemen, Murphy not only signed a poster and sent it back to West Point, but he sent some signed baseball trading cards that were passed on to this young soldier deployed in Afghanistan. And the report back was the kid immediately stuck the baseball trading card of Dale Murphy in his combat helmet for good luck. And sure enough, although he was shot at many times and survived some pretty big battles, he returned home safely, alive, and completely well. And he attributes much of it to his good luck charm, a Dale Murphy trading card. Ladies and gentlemen, don't go anywhere. This is Dan Clark, voiceamerica.com, Influencers Channel. Let's go to commercial break, and we'll be back in a moment with the amazing Major League Baseball superstar, Dale Murphy. stories be motivated be inspired join us today voice america influencers i just got out of a meeting where the unbelievable dan clark was the keynote speaker he is clearly the most interesting man in the world he's been into space he reminded us to think bigger He's a primary contributor to those chicken soup books, and he inspired all of us to make our lives matter. He taught us how to deal with change like he had to when he had to recover from a paralyzing football injury. Everybody needs to hear his message on leadership and safety and how he turns last place NFL teams into Super Bowl champions. Call this number, 1-800-676-1121, and visit danclark.com. I'm busy and so is my family. Leftover pizza and unhealthy takeout isn't really doing it for us anymore. Just ask my bathroom scale. That all changed when I found Freshly. For less than $10 a meal, Freshly delivers six meals a week, always fresh, never frozen, prepared by top chefs and nutritionists using the best, freshest, gluten-free ingredients. The best part is the menu is always new and fresh, just like the food, and it only takes three minutes for me to prepare breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and there's no messy cleanup and no dishes. 
My family loves the choices and the taste and freshly delivers to my home and my office so I eat healthy all day every day. If you're tired of the same old cardboard delivery and takeout, try out Freshly.com today and save $20 on your first order using coupon code VAH639 at Freshly.com. Your taste buds and your scale will thank you. So save 20 bucks today with coupon code VAH639 at Freshly.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to The Art of Significance featuring your host, Dan Clark. If you want to join in on this week's discussion, give us a call at 1-866-472-5795. Again, that's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop down a line via email to danclark at xmission.com. Now back to the Art of Significance. Here again is Dan Clark. Welcome back with my guest, Dale Murphy. Just to reiterate a little bit about the preamble introduction that I gave him as I came on the air a few minutes ago. Dale Murphy was drafted in the first round of the 1974 draft by the Atlanta Braves. Now, why would I bring on an old-timer, with all due respect? Because what he represents is still the finest part about competitive sports. He still represents timeless governing principles of success and significance that all of us need to be reminded about and continuously exposed to. Murph played almost his entire career for the Atlanta Braves and finished with the Phillies and the Colorado Rockies. And I just want to bring out a couple of other most important things about Murphy so you can really tune into why he's tied into this this specific show with a Medal of Honor recipient, Ty Carter, who will occupy the second hour. Murphy was on the cover of Sports Illustrated three times. In 1987, he was named one of Sports Illustrated's five sportsmen and sportswomen of the year, representing Major League Baseball as the athlete who, quote, cared the most. He was honored with his award by President Ronald Reagan in the Oval Office of the White House. Deal retired from baseball in 1993 after a long and successful career. His number three jersey was the fourth in the history of the Atlanta Braves organization to be retired. It hung for a time in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium in Turner Field and now takes its place among the number of other Braves legends in SunTrust Park. I remember having an opportunity to meet and interview and spend a couple of hours with the Atlanta Braves super slugger, Hank Aaron, and I was on a roll, and he was so gracious, and we were talking about hitting and 
and and racism and his responsibility at that stage in our country's history to to wave the flag and to bring us all together. And the second I asked him if he knew Dale Murphy, the conversation completely changed. We ended up talking about Murph for about 30 minutes. I don't know if I was ticked off or not, but I love this man. Dale Murphy, talk to me, brother. Thanks for joining me on my show. <laughs> oh, thank you, Dan. Uh, I, what, what can I say? I'll, I'll, I'd love to wake up to that introduction <laughs> every day. You're so funny. You're so kind, Dan. Thank so you let's so get, much. Let's, Thanks for having me on. No, you're awesome. So let's just get right to the right to the right to the story. So where did you grow up and teach us about making the transition from high school, college, if there was. Uh, I won't ask you about, you know, waiting for some young man to go serve a military, excuse me, a, a church mission and then you marrying his his girlfriend. We won't get into that story, Murph, I promise. But I'll have you back. Guaranteed I'll have you back. But just take us back to your youth. Uh, remember Ted Ted Williams said hitting a baseball is the hardest thing in any competitive sport and you became one of the best of all time teach us about your youth about eye-hand coordination about dedication about love of the game about anything you want to talk about just start us wherever you can and take us up until you were drafted by the Braves well thank you um, yeah you know I it, it really is is uh Pretty typical. A lot of a lot of um, uh, baseball players get drafted out of high school, and I was drafted as you, as you mentioned, 1974 uh, by the Atlanta Braves. Uh, the fifth where player. Did, where picked, did you grow up? Where did you grow up? Oh yeah, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Um, really a, a really good, rich uh, baseball uh, uh, heritage there, even though it is known as a. As a, as a place that rains every day. I like to share the story, Dan, that when the scouts came to watch me play and my coach would give them, give them the schedule, the scouts would say, well, there's, there's no dates on the games. And, and our coach would say, well, if, if it's not raining, we're, we're probably going to be playing. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I was really fortunate. I, I grew up in the same community and was friends with the Dunn family with, with John, Jeff, and Jim Dunn, and they're, they're, they were all Jays. Their their mom was Jean, and their their dad was Jack. And Jack is a Hall of Fame baseball coach, uh, both in high school and college at, at Wilson and Cleveland High School in Portland, and then Portland State uh, in college. But during my high school, uh, you know, my formative years, I hung out with the Dunn family and just absorbed everything I could about baseball. Jack continues to be the the one that I I credit with teaching me the game, uh, the love of the game, the intricacies of the game, even at a young age. So I was very fortunate to grow up in a, a great baseball community. We had very good uh, high school and American Legion programs uh, there, and drafted in 1974 as a catcher. And... Uh, you know, just really didn't really know what I was getting into, to be honest with you, Dan. I, I, I had signed a letter of intent to go to Arizona State, uh, but when I got drafted, um, my mom and dad and I just kind of talked it over, and and uh, we, I just looked at them and said, I'd like to give this a shot. I really, you know, Dan, you're, you kind of play ball, and, and, and I knew about, I think as a, when I was a sophomore, I knew there were some scouts in the stands, but... Um, 
uh, my junior year, I think uh, I knew there was a chance that after my senior year I was going to get drafted, but I hadn't thought seriously about it. You know, I dreamed about it and thought that would be fun, but didn't know it was going to be a reality till then. And then, and then I signed and and went into minor league baseball and and had a you know to be honest with you <laughs> had a few times there where I wondered if this was even still going to you know come true uh, the realities the competition and and the challenges and the ups and downs of a professional career I, my path to the major leagues wasn't wasn't a straight shot it kind of had some twists and turns but um, very thankful to be drafted by the Atlanta Braves and. Um, you know, what did you can start I say? in sing- Did you start in single A? Yeah, I I made all the stops. Dan um, started in rookie ball, then went to A ball, double A, triple A, and a uh, couple years of instructional league, which was in Florida, and then a year of winter ball in the Dominican. So when I got drafted, uh, you know, people asked me, "Well, how do you make that transition from high school to the major leagues?" And I said, "Well, if you looked at most of the careers, that you don't go from." Uh, high school to the major leagues. There's only been, well, I played with Bob Horner in 1978, and at that time I think he was the only only the fifth player in the history of the game that had never played minor league baseball. He signed out of Arizona State and went right to the big leagues. But most of us go through the, the challenges of, of minor league baseball. And so, you know, I left, uh, signed a contract in, in June of 1974 and really just, played baseball almost continuously um, until I, my first full year uh, in uh, was 1978 in Atlanta. Well, let me ask you a, a former player's question and a, and a coach's question. Do you believe that the, the years that you played as a catcher helped you see so many more pitches than the average player on your team that actually helped you become a better batter later on? That's a that's an interesting question. Um, I I think so. I th- you know I was drafted as a catcher, and and so obviously one of the things you do as a catcher you work closely with the pitcher, trying to figure out how to get guys out. You know what their weaknesses are and, and what their strengths are, and what your pitches your pitcher's weaknesses and strength. And and so I, I believe so. I think uh, you know eventually I moved to first base. Uh, didn't work out well there. Bobby Cox called me. Uh, I think it was the winter of 1979 and 80, uh, and said, "Hey, you know, next spring, uh, the spring of 1980, you would like to move you to the outfield." It's like, okay. Uh, so all those years of catching, I think, helped me understand a little bit of, of the approach pitchers take to try to get you out and uh, things to look for. Uh, I think that's a a, a valid point. I was behind the plate so many of those years seeing the ball come from that direction that, uh, you know, uh, I needed all those thousands of at-bats to get me ready. And I think being behind the plate kind of added to that, uh, that experience of seeing the ball. I think it helped me a lot. So let's just interrupt our interview and you put on the dad hat, you put on the, you put on the amazing father hat, the father of eight children. And you have your second son, Travis, who's a special needs child, very dear and near and dear to my oldest daughter. She's a special education teacher, emphasis on the severely challenged. I know you know that. So put on the dad hat. How 
Can you tie that lesson of life into the significance of preparation, spaced repetition learning? You got to do the, you got to get good at the little things before you can get good at the big things. You know, philosophize for a second, brother. Teach us about what you know from a family man's perspective. Well, I, the, the first thing I would say, Dan, and, and, and you know you know Nancy as well, she's the all-star here in the family. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we got uh, uh, married in, in 79, and, and Chad was born in, in 1980, and then I retired in 93, and our daughter Madison was born in 93. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think about what, Nancy did throughout my career in raising the kids and putting up with me and my my slumps and my uh, frustrations with the game at times. Uh, so I, I first of all, I very lucky and thankful and blessed to to be married to Nancy. Um, she's she's the MVP and the All Star around here for sure. But I think I think the uh, I think the thing is to me as far as as you know, balancing everything is, 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 uh, you know, as you say, the, the little things, I think we get so caught up, especially it's temp, it's tempting as a, as a mm-hmm. professional athlete or as, as an entertainer. But, but what I've found is it really doesn't matter what your job is or what you do for a living. The, the temptation is, is to put added significance and importance to that as opposed to the things that that don't get a lot of publicity, uh, that you, you don't get a lot of praise for, um, there, you don't get a lot of pats on the back, you know, for being a good dad or a good mom. Um, but it it is keeping those things in perspective, as far as I'm concerned, that that the the and I say little things in that in that I mean that they don't get a lot of attention. Uh, in 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 our world today, but I think I think we could all um, understand the importance and the long term significance for our communities and the happiness of our of uh, of our families and just our communities in general of doing those things that don't get a lot of attention and a lot of uh, a praise and a lot of like I said a lot of pats on the back and that's the the hard part of being a parent and and sharing in that uh, equally as as husband and wife and I can't say that I've really been an equal partner in that but I think as as a dad if we can remember that um, the importance the the ultimate importance of the of of family life and your kids and and doing those little things with your kids and understanding that. That really is the critical thing. That that's the critical critical thing that's going to bring you the most joy and really the uh, the uh, you know there's just some things that last forever and I believe those family relationships will last forever. Our jobs won't. The limelight doesn't. Um, you know, I kids don't remember me playing. I'm very thankful for Google and YouTube, by the way, uh, <laughs> because <laughs> because those things you know those things are gone and. And, uh, but some things last forever. And I think that's the challenge of, of trying to remember. Uh, but those things that last forever and that sometimes are most important, sometimes the world and the publicity doesn't tell us that we got to We got to think about that and remember it all the time. Yeah, I totally agree. <clears throat> and while you were playing, my young brother was an ecclesiastical leader in Chicago and he 
multiple times would call me and say, you won't believe it. Sunday morning, the day that the Braves are in town to play the Cubs, Dale Murphy shows up at church. <laughs> and uh, and and isn't that an interesting what goes around no, comes around, brother, because his son is the one you called when he was down as a superstar in the East Bay of California, now high school superstar, truly on his way to play in the big leagues, I believe. And it's his son that I asked you to call that you you fired up, brother, and helped him get out of his doldrums when he suffered a shoulder injury. So what goes around mm-hmm. comes around. Ladies and gentlemen, in 1991, Dale Murphy won the Bart Giamatti Caring Award and was presented in 1985 with the Lou Gehrig Memorial Award, recognizing him as the player who best fit the image and character of Lou Gehrig. And Dale Murphy also received the Roberto Clemente Award in honor of his character and charitable contributions on and off the field. So, yes, we hear about Dale Murphy's streak of 740 consecutive games where he was, uh, where he hit. His hitting streak lasted 740 consecutive games from 1981 to 1986. It's the 12th longest in baseball history. But the reason why I've invited Dale on my show, the Influencers Channel, is because of what we're talking about, the little things that make the big difference. We've gone there, and I have so many sports fans who are on this uh, on this show. Let's quickly take a commercial break, Murphy, and then let's come back and just talk about hitting, talk about baseball, talk about the, the, the World Series, talk about anything you want to teach us. Again, Dan Clark, VoiceAmerica.com, the Influencers Channel. We'll be right back in a moment with superstar Major League Baseball legend Dale Murphy. Hear the stories. Be motivated. Be inspired. Join us today. Voice America Influencers. Become a member of VoiceAmerica.com. It's easy and best of all, it's free. Start out by going to our homepage or any of our channels and click register at the top. Once you've created an account and signed in, you can create your own custom library, opt into our newsletter, search by show, host, guest, or topic of interest, or browse millions of hours of content across all of our Voice America radio channels. Membership gets you more. Visit voiceamerica.com today to get started and tailor the listening experience to your taste. If you're an event meeting planner like me, you have two ongoing challenges. You can't afford to have a speaker who bombs. And when you do have an amazing speaker, who in the world do you bring into next year's meeting that will top them? Well, you never have to worry again. Book Dan Clark. Dan Clark is one of the most incredible human beings on the planet. He's been named one of the top 10 speakers in the world. He's known for customizing his speech around your meeting theme. So your people leave with benefits that last a lifetime. Here's the number, 1-800-676-1121. Or just visit danclark.com. If you're an influencer, you don't follow the trends, you set them. Voice America influencers are involved in creating change in personal and professional lives, collaborating and driving value to make our lives better. We have world-renowned thought leaders, speakers, authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and some of the most influential voices today. Listen in today to what they have to say. Engage in the conversation. The Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. Answer the call. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You're listening to The Art of Significance, featuring your host, Dan Clark. If you want to join in on this week's discussion, give us a call at 1-866-472-5795. Again, that's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop Dan a line via email to Clark at xmission.com. Now back to the art of significance. Here again is Dan Clark. Hey, joining me again with my guest, Major League Baseball superstar legend Dale Murphy, most famous from the Atlanta Braves organization. He was the youngest player in history at the time to win back-to-back MVP awards 1982 and 1983, won two consecutive National League Player of the Year awards, and he was named to the NL All-Star team seven times, five as a starter. He won the Gillette Trophy for the highest number of All-Star votes in the National League, in the entire National League in 1985. For the remainder of our interview here, Murph, I want to just let everybody know so it changes the it shifts the, the, the conversation and changes gears. Dale is still known today as one of the true gentlemen of the game. He is a sought-after business, collegiate, and motivational speaker and travels the country sharing his messages about major league management, ethics, and integrity, creating a culture of success and more. Murphy and I have shared the platform as speakers before many times, and I love it when you have a group of young athletes and suddenly you start talking about the perils of steroids and don't you dare even think about using performance-enhancing drugs. And it begins there and does not stop in your emphasis of ethics and total integrity and love and honor of the game. So I'm just basically saying, okay, Murph, what do you want to teach us about the things that matter most to you. Well, thank you, Dan. I think the, uh, the, the one of the things that, of course, baseball went through that big steroid era. I guess you could could call it, and it just it bothered me uh, for a number of reasons. I think uh, you know athletes have such an impact on our our youth entertainers. You know, which basically you are, you know, if you're a professional athlete, you're an entertainer and involved in pop culture, whatever you want to say, and have great uh, influence upon kids. And it was frustrating to me to see baseball go through that. And so as I, as I tried to react to that, to, to share with the kids that, that, uh, you know, that there's, there's, respecting yourself and respecting the game that those are the things that are going to going to last i tell them you know it 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 sometimes you know when you're 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 young you know you you don't get it and so you don't realize how fast life goes but i just try to emphasize to them and to all people that i that i talk to that um there's going to come a time when you're done and you want to be able to look back and just say i did it the right way um it may not mean that you make all the all-star teams or 
or that you win MVPs or you get in the Hall of Fame of, of your individual uh, pursuit, whatever that may be. Uh, but the mo- more important thing is to have the respect of, of, of those you competed against and, and the respect for yourself and, and respect for that institution that you were a part of, which I, I was a part of baseball, uh, that you respected that. And uh, that's all you, that's the most important, that that's the only thing. Those are the things that are going to last longer than your career, and uh, um, it. Uh, I believe baseball's done a, a lot better job, and 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 uh, in in cracking down on on the use of performance enhancing drugs, and that's that's uh you know I'm happy and I like that you know. But kids are are faced and will be faced. Uh, but are faced with it every day in school, you know, cheating on tests. Uh, there's opportunities to, to take shortcuts and um, and to bend the rules. Uh, not not just if you're going to be a professional baseball player. Everybody's going to be faced with the decision um, to do. You know, is is this the right way to do things? And uh, so I just try to be a voice out there and say that. You know, you, you probably, you, you can make the decision. You probably know in your heart, you'll know, and uh, it's going to be tough, and it's not going to be very fun sometimes, and and uh, that there, you, short-term gain may not be there. But in the long run, it's always the right decision and uh, to do things the right way. Okay, so... You know, you won all these gold gloves and you're <clears throat> in the, the obviously Silver Slugger Award and all these amazing awards. Teach us about when you hit a batting slump. Surely in all of your years, you were born back in 1862, and since then you've had to have at least one. That was a joke. I'm glad you finally laughed. You had to have had at least one batting slump. Take us to that moment where you just couldn't turn on the ball. Something was blocking your ability to be everything you were born to be and pontificate, elaborate on why you think that happens in all of our lives, why we're on a roll and then suddenly something happens. But most significantly, I want you to teach us about how you get out of a batting slump, how you snap out of it and continually pursue excellence. Well, that is, that's a great question, Dan. I think um, I've always said, you know, there's there. Mo- most guys that make it to the major leagues usually have a situation or a time during their career prior to making it to the major leagues, uh, wondering if they're really going to make a time of really, you know, some self doubt. And uh, I think those are can be can be uh, real f- very formative times and strengthening times. And that and and so what happens throughout the minor, your minor league career, all of a sudden you're faced with stiffer competition and everybody's as good as you are. And there's going to be times, and I did experience them, not only in the minor leagues, but also in the major leagues, of, of times of, of self-doubt. And so, um, there, and, and that's okay. It happens because we're human beings and there's no way that you can continually, uh, continually do things uh, as a human being, they're going to be perfect. So in the field of competition, you're going to have stretches where, you know, you go 0 for 4 and then you go 0 for 8 
and all of a sudden you're 0 for 12 and thoughts start creeping in. And so what there, there were a couple of things I learned real quickly um, was to just this, your self-talk is critical. Uh, no matter what happened yesterday, whether it was 0 for, 0 for 4 or 4 for 4, uh, that today is is a brand new fresh start, and that I have to compete at the same level as I did yesterday, um, and and approach this game the same uh, the same way as I did yesterday. So this this sameness of attitude and competitiveness, regardless of what happened yesterday, if it, if it if it was a bad game, you can't go into today's game with a negative thoughts. Uh, but if it was a real good game, you can't go into today's game with, hey, this is really going to come easy to me. It's a matter of prep, preparing yourself, getting ready mentally and physically each day um, and approaching it the same way. But one of the things I remember, it, no matter what I did, uh, whether it was, like I said, a, a good game and I had maybe a home run or something or a game where I kind of struggled, one of the things that I, I'd like to do, um, and all of us, all of us did, but it really, you know, is important, is to ask the question: Who's pitching tomorrow? Um, who are we facing tomorrow? Um, because it changed my my focus and my attention, and allowed my subconscious to to kind of forget today's starting pitcher and what happened. But now I'm thinking about tomorrow and who's going to pitch. And, and that would happen uh, sometime after, you know, tonight's game. Uh, you're going to see a World Series tonight. Dodgers and the, uh, and the Astros start in the World Series. And that's, that's what you, they're going to have to do. There's going to be some, some good things and some not-so-good things. But regardless, about 20, 30 minutes after the game, you start focusing your attention Okay, who we got tomorrow? What's the game plan? And your subconscious goes to work, and your 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 um, your preparation starts really the night before. Okay, so let's go back to last year's World Series. Then the the Cubs are teeing it off against the the Cleveland Indians, and it was it has to be one of the greatest, most exciting series in all of history. I'm such a baseball fan, and I hope you would agree with that. You, you it was just unbelievable how it just went up and down and back and forth and. It didn't matter if you're a Cubs fan or an Indians fan or any fan. You just loved what happened last year. So here's my question, bro. The rain delay. Something was said in the locker rooms of both teams. The Cubs, whoever talked, and we know who it was, something was said. And what I love to share with my audiences as a speaker, as you were a speaker, is that in that locker room, when it, what was it, a 15-minute, 20-minute rain delay? The Cubs yeah, didn't say. Sell- yeah, it, it, it definitely was a, a, a real interesting uh, uh, detail of the World Series that was, was of major significance. You're right. Yeah, and so my question to you is, the, the Cubs didn't suddenly get bigger, faster, stronger, smarter. They didn't become better fielders. They didn't become better hitters in that 15 to 20-minute locker room talk. So talk to us about the psychology of winning. Talk to us about how an ordinary individual can somehow step it up and when put in a situation can do something extraordinary. 
That, well, it, 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 it's, a, it's a, a great question, a great observation during the World Series because I, uh, there was some serious momentum on the Cubs' side, and then the uh, um, then someone hit a home run for the uh, for the Indians, and all of a sudden momentum completely shifted, and then there was the rain delay. <laughs> and uh, uh, as you said, the Cubs had a chance at both teams, uh, but the it, well, from what I understand, the essence of the you know, the, the Cubs, all of a sudden, guys were kind of freaking out and panicking and gave them a chance to, to regroup. And some of the veterans said a few things, uh, you know, details, I, I'm not sure, but probably to the, 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 the essence of their, their message was, look, it, it, it is a tie game. You know, this, this isn't over. I think it was tied, or maybe they were down one. But the point of it is there's still time left. There's, there's something to do. And, um, and, and you know, let's, let's not it, – it, because the odds of success earlier in the broadcast, uh, Dan, you mentioned the odds of success. You know, being a real good hitter is not that, is not that much different than being on, uh, you know, borderline. But if, if you're not um, in a mental state to where your body can react in, in a good way, it, it, it just it, it, it affects you. Your mental state, your preparation, your optimism, your approach, um, you, can't, you can't be um, – you, you can't let what happened in the past, basically, determine your approach. You, can, you can't stop. You just cannot stop. You've got to keep pushing ahead. And you're going to have days where you strike out. You're going to have days where you hit a home run. Most of the days you're just trying to get a single, <laughs> you know, get, get, get a good at bat here and there. But you, you know, but you never stop. You keep going for it. And that was the essence of their meetings during that rain delay. And that's what we all need to remember. It's not every day is going to, going to be a game winner, you know, a walk-off home run. Most of the days we're just trying to, you know, get through, keep going, keep swinging for the fences. So what you're saying is, is that we can literally change our momentum by changing our attitude. We don't have to go out there and necessarily swing the bat unless we believe that swinging the bat is going to be worthwhile. So exactly. we really can regroup spiritually and, and, and mentally and emotionally before we regroup physically. That's what you're saying? Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's it be, because our... We we know how much our mind and our psychology and our self talk uh, uh, gets our physical body going, and you know, being human beings, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to have errors, we're going to have swings and misses. But the uh, the ability to keep talking to ourselves, and sometimes you need some help. You know, that's what I think happened in that Cubs locker room. So the veterans stood up and said, "Hey, you know, let's go. (laughs) This thing isn't over." And let's not let's not go out there in the next few innings and and play like we think it's over. Um, uh, you know that rain delay had a a lot of people think that had a lot to do with the Cubs getting through that shift of momentum. Yeah, in Chicago they say God is definitely a Cub. You know, that's just funny. <laughs> For sure. Okay, so we only have a few minutes left, brother. If you had, if you had one hour to live. What would you say, man? What's your last lecture? 
And then before we go off the air, I want to make sure everybody knows how to get a hold of you as an extraordinary motivational speaker and someone who can come in and talk to teams, talk to communities, talk to corporations, talk to trade associations. But before we give out your contact information, teach us, brother, what, what you're, you're the most extraordinary ball player I've ever met. And I'm not going to get teary-eyed again, but ladies and gentlemen, I have a pretty good sports memorabilia collection. And I have 73 autographed baseballs by everybody except Babe Ruth. And when I say everybody, my collection is really, really good. And my best, my favorite signed baseball is by the amazing Dale Murphy. Because you you've signed it as a as a as a two-time National League, you know, champion, MVP, home run guru, Golden Glove, Silver Slugger, blah blah blah, all as an as a two-time NL MVP. But you've also signed it as a father, as an ecclesiastical leader, as a friend. And I don't know anybody else who can sign a baseball like that. So please, in about four minutes, teach my audience, my friends, as I call them. What what would you what would you say to the world if you had one hour to live? Well, thank you, Dan. Again, you're 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 so kind. It's just been so great to to be with you on the show today. I think, um, you know, I I what what I try to remember personally, and what I what I I I talk a lot about is that. Um, there, there are things, and there, there are relationships, you know, in our lives, and the the things, you know, just disappear. But relationships last forever, and relationships, um, uh, there, there's a, there's, there's all kinds of relationships, and what I think about is, is the relationships with your 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 team at, at work, what you know, whatever you're involved in. Um, uh, that those are relationships there. Uh, your friends, those are relationships there. Your family, um, those relationships. That, that's what lasts, and it's not easy. Um, I'm I'm not very good at at. Uh, I'm not a, a you know a, a great communicator sometimes, and uh, and it takes work. It takes effort. Uh, it takes thought. But I think about. Uh, the relationships we have with each other, and just in those areas, like I say, outside of our um, um, whatever we do in life, uh, and those with our friends, and those with and those relationships with our family, and it's all it's what binds us together. It's what motivates us. Um, there's the coaches that were very motivating for me, and managers I had a good relationship with. It wasn't necessarily the details of how to hit. Sometimes it was more of he believed in me, and uh, that really helped me more than a hitting tip sometimes, just the confidence he had in me. And as a families and as parents, uh, you know, we can give our kids advice, and, you know, and that's always helpful, but, you know, what they really need to know is that we care about them and that we're pulling for them. And so that's what I think about is, is that those things that are, are most important last forever will will be uh, those relationships we have with each other. 
Dale Murphy, Major League Baseball superstar, National League MVP twice, world family MVP a gajillion times. <laughs> How do we get a hold of you so we can bring you in as a motivational speaker, as an inspirational guru to our companies and to our communities? Oh, thank you, Dan. Well, I got a got a website, just simply dalemurphy.com. I'm on, I'm on Twitter, um, at dalemurphy3, which uh, I enjoy, and... Uh, and that's that. That's really the best way to to reach me, DaleMurphy.com, or on Twitter somehow uh, um, at DaleMurphy3. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Don't go anywhere as we go to commercial break. As promised, the second individual that I have on the show today is one of the more extraordinary human beings you will ever meet. And we become the average of the five people we associate with the most. That's why I've loved interviewing Dale Murphy, my dear friend, my hero, this entire first hour. Which means if we become the average of the five people we associate with the most, we can't just rely on belly-to-belly, hand-to-hand relationships, heart-to-heart relationships can also exist on the internet, on a radio show such as this, VoiceAmerica.com Influencers Channel. And my next guest is a Congressional Medal of Honor recipient. No, it's not an award. They don't choose this. Every time I've had an opportunity to meet and interview a recipient of the Medal of Honor, Mm. he has always been humble and he has always reiterated that he's an ordinary man who was, when put in a situation, had to do something extraordinary and step up and do what he needed to do. The first time I met Ty Carter was on a phone call as we started talking about how he could transition into a full-time professional speaker because his story, his, his relationships, his experiences are extraordinary. And one of the things that I, I, I caught from our conversation is embedded in one powerful quote that Ty Carter, in my mind, epitomizes. It's not enough to say I will do my best. We must succeed in doing that which is necessary. And as I have an opportunity to interview this amazing young man, I want you to listen to the the in-between-the-lines messages and stories that make him such an extraordinary human being. Yes, he's a war hero. Yes, he's an extraordinary former Marine and soldier. And yes, we'll hear that story. But... The intriguing part to me is that Ty Carter is a family man. He's a community activist. He is such uh, an advocate for us as civilians to not only understand what post-traumatic stress is, but to garner our support and give money, resources, time, our talents, doing everything we possibly can do to help Ty Carter in his many and multiple causes and uh, in, in helping him live this amazing life that he is already living that inspires me personally and all of us on a daily basis. Don't go anywhere. I'll read a little bit about his citation, a little bit about the Medal of Honor, what it is, so you're up to speed. And most significantly, we get a chance to talk to this superstar human being who happens to be a war hero. Dan Clark, VoiceAmerica.com, Influencers Channel. We'll go, we'll go to commercial break, and we'll be back with the amazing Ty Carter. We don't follow. We lead. 
Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. I just got out of a meeting where the unbelievable Dan Clark was the keynote speaker. He is clearly the most interesting man in the world. He's been into space. He reminded us to think bigger. He's a primary contributor to those chicken soup books. And he inspired all of us to make our lives matter. He taught us how to deal with change like he had to when he had to recover from a paralyzing football injury. Everybody needs to hear his message on leadership and safety and how he turns last place NFL teams into Super Bowl champions. Call this number, 1-800-676-1121 and visit danclark.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Influence is often inherited, but more often created from our actions. The Voice America Influencers Channel brings together those who are creating and leading the way and those who will create the road from nowhere in the future. Being an influencer isn't always about being the most important person in the world. It's about being the most influential person in the world around you. A better manager, a better friend, a better marketer or strategic planner. The Voice America Influencers Channel is about becoming better and earning influence. Be an influencer. Join us today. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You're listening to The Art of Significance, featuring your host, Dan Clark. If you want to join in on this week's discussion, give us a call at 1-866-472-5795. Again, that's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop down a line via email to danclark at xmission.com. Now back to the Art of Significance. Here again is Dan Clark. Welcome back. I hope you were a part of my listening audience for my first hour, my first guest with Major League Baseball superstar Dale Murphy. And as I began my show today, I talked about the difference between a 200 hitter in baseball and a 300 hitter in baseball. 200 hitters hit one hit two out of 10 times up to bat, safely on base two out of 10 times up to bat. They make minimum salary, traded from, from team to team as, as often as a manager changes his dirty socks. And if you remember, the 300 hitter hits safely on base three out of 10 times, and he becomes a superstar, signs the contracts and uh, endorsement deals. The difference between a 200 hitter and a 300 hitter is one hit in every 10 times up to bat. And if they let it go to full count, three balls and two strikes, the difference between a 200 hitter and a 300 hitter is only one hit in every 60 pitches. So the difference between good and great is just a little bit of extra effort. 
My next guest is an amazing human being. His name is Ty Carter. And the reason why I continuously on air and off the air behind Ty's back, when I talk about this man, I always talk about Ty Carter, the amazing human being who happens to be a recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. He is an extraordinary human being who happened to have been a Marine and then a soldier. We need to put the emphasis on this incredible soul, and then we'll add on to that amazing soul the things that he was able to do, as he would say, an ordinary man who, when put in a situation, had to step it up and do something extraordinary. So as a Medal of Honor recipient, let me just share with my listeners here for a moment, Ty, what the Medal of Honor is. It's the United States of America's highest and most prestigious personal military decoration that may be awarded to recognize U.S. military service members who distinguished themselves by acts of valor. Think about that word. The Medal of Honor was created as a Navy version in 1861 named the Medal of Valor, and an Army version of the medal named the Medal of Honor was established in 1862 to give recognition to men who distinguished themselves conspicuously by gallantry and intrepidity. Did I get that right? Intrepidity. There you go. See, you're the you're the you're the educated one on this show. Thank you so much for helping me in combat with an enemy of the United States. And because the medal is presented in the name of Congress, it is referred to as the Congressional Medal of Honor. However, the official name is the Medal of Honor, which began with the United States Army's version. And within the United States Code, the medal is referred to as the Medal of Honor, less less frequently as Congressional Medal of Honor. The president presents the Medal of Honor at a formal ceremony in Washington, D.C., which is intended to represent the gratitude of the American people with posthumous presentations made to the primary next of kin. And I say that because there are only five living recipients of the Medal of Honor, Ty Carter is one of them. And according to the Medal of Honor Historical Society of the United States, there have only been 3,517 Medal of Honors awarded to the nation's soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Coast Guard. And Ty Carter is one of them. Ty, thank you so much for being on my show. I honor you. I love you, brother. And this is going to be one of the greatest days of my life. <laughs> <laughs> you, you give me way too much credit. Um, I just want everybody to know that uh, Dan here, he actually helped me out when I was just getting started. His, uh, he uh, mentored me. He assisted me with understanding contracts and what was required as a professional speaker, to go out there and, and represent not only, my, only myself, but also the military service that I, uh, that I represented. So this is a pleasure to, to repay you back and uh, let everybody know what kind of a cool guy you are. Nah, you're so cool. And as a songwriter, I, I need to threaten that I, if I, you know, I would write a song about you, Ty, but I don't know what rhymes with stud muffin hunk of burning love. So we're even. There we go, baby. <laughs> wow. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I am blushing. Thank you. You're so so funny. Okay, so let's talk. What I want them to know is that while on your first deployment in Afghanistan, Carter was stationed at Combat Outpost 
affectionately referred to as COP Keating in Camdesh or Comdesh District, Nuristan Province. And on October 3rd, 2009, the outpost came under heavy attack by the Taliban. And Carter, then a specialist, distinguished himself in what came to be known as the Battle of Camdesh. And according to the detailed official narrative from the United States Army, more than 300 enemy fighters attacked COP Keating from surrounding high ground before 6 a.m. I've Googled it. I've seen the photos. The Taliban actually videotaped the attack. And you can see that you were just ducks in a pond at lower level. Oh, my gosh. As you would say, just a, just a, a death trap waiting to happen. And under yeah. intense fire... Ty Carter carried ammunition 100 meters across open ground from near his barracks to a Humvee at the South Battle position. And the story continues on. Ty, take us back to the beginning of your desire to join the military. Let's start there before we get into the into, into the battle. And in fact, you joined the Marines and then what happened? And then you came back and you joined the Army. I mean, this is a fascinating story of, of an well, inside kind of almost subliminal commitment to service before self that you didn't realize you had. I, I didn't. When I, was, uh, when I was getting out of high school, I had the choice of uh, continuing, to, continuing to work at Burger King or uh, go to college or possibly join the military. And um, when I saw the possibilities of, you know, the debt and how much school costs, I kind of uh, veered toward the military. And then when I went into the recruiting office, they said, well, what do you like to do that has to do with the military? And I was like, well, I like to, you know, set off firecrackers and shoot guns. They're like, well, you can be a combat engineer. You can actually make those, comp- those firecrackers and those booby traps and those bombs. And I was like, wow, you get paid to do that? And I said, yeah, all right, sign me up. And so uh, I went to uh, uh, MCRD San Diego. Um, and then I was also uh, trained as a combat engineer. I spent uh, a year in Okinawa, Japan, Camp Schwab. Because of my, I guess, test scores, and I could type, they um, took me out of my job and made me an intelligence clerk for an entire year. So I got a little bit of that behind me. And this was in the Marine well, was, Corps, right? Because Okinawa is a Marine yeah. base. I've been there before. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So then what happened? Yeah. Well, uh, while I was there, they noticed that I could shoot really well, so they also cross-trained me as a primary marksmanship instructor, and I had the privilege of, of teaching Marines on uh, Edson Range and Camp Pendleton uh, basically how to accurately and effectively engage a point target at uh, 500 yards with high winds and open sights. So I took a lot of pride in what I did there. It seems that uh, teaching is uh, sometimes better than doing. I've learned that. But uh, after, um, in 2002, I got out of the Marine Corps, and then I went to college uh, and studied as a biology major, uh, macro and microbiology. Uh, that's where I met my first wife. Uh, we got married, had a baby, and and uh, the job situation was kind of uh, poor. I think there was at one point in time while we were traveling the U.S. looking for work, I had three part-time jobs at one time, and it still wasn't doing very well. But um, eventually, uh, the, the marriage was failing, so uh, we decided to move back to California Bay Area, and... Um, uh, got divorced, but with all these jobs that I was doing, I still couldn't afford to pay child support. So um, I 
kept my word. I refused to be, a, I guess you can say, a deadbeat dad. So I joined the Army just so I could pay uh, child support and get the benefits for my, uh, my newborn daughter. And then, I want to interrupt you for a second, brother. That is such a cool part of who you are. I love the way you talk about your daughter. I love the way you talk about your family. You're such a good man. Continue. So, um, you know, I joined the military. Um, I became a scout because I, I appreciated the, the smaller units, the camaraderie, the brotherhood, uh, the kind of thing where you come together as a family. Um, also, just being in the military, it's completely different than the civilian world. Um, from me, starting out, you know, in high school, I worked in a civilian where I worked uh, fast food and then, you know, did sports. I was a, a, a hurdler in track. I was a tight end in football. Um, when I was in the military, because you spend so much time with your brothers and sisters in the military and because you train for possible severe conflict where there's loss of limb or life, you become so close that it's like a forever bond. So I wanted that back. And when I joined and became, when I joined the army and became a scout, I started to feel that bond again. And and I was, I was happy to wake up in the morning. My daughter was being taken care of. I had, you know, clothes on my back, a roof over my head. And I was uh, having a great time shooting weapons and learning about reconnaissance and all these cool little gadgets the army has. They let you train with. And then, uh, they, I got deployed to Afghanistan, and it was it was pretty much um, an eye opener, but also uh, the feeling of it's about time. I spent four years in the Marine Corps training for combat, and I never got to see it. So finally, um, the four years in the Marine Corps plus the year and a half or so in the Army, here I am going to a spot where I will finally be tested, and I looked forward to that, and I hoped for it. However, it kind of changed when we um, landed in Afghanistan. Um, we were all marching in a row. We had, you know, I, two or three duffel bags, our rucksack, all several weapons, several optics, and we're basically pack mules trying to get to the next step. And then uh, uh, the platoon sergeant calls us to attention, so we drop our bags and go to attention, and we're all in a line uh, right next to the flight line. The uh, flight line is where all the, you know, the aircraft uh, land and take off. Well. As we were getting off and we're standing at attention of the flight line, the three vehicles or three pickup trucks passed by. And each one of the pickup trucks had a flag draped casket in it. And that kind of was, was the awakening that this isn't a video game. You're not reading a book. This is actually happening kind of a thing. So it, uh, it reminded us or it reminded me of, uh, you know, the, the importance and the severity of the job that we have. And that's kind of how that deployment started off. It's just, it was one big eye-opener after another. Okay, so let me interrupt you for a second. You know, I've been downrange many times firing up the troops. And one of the questions I love to ask our, our soldiers, our Marines, our airmen, our sailors, okay, so in a time of war and you raise your hand as a volunteer to join our military, God bless you for your sense of service before self and your, your inherent uh, patriotism. And you raise your arm and say, I will serve my country and I'll defend the Constitution. Anyone who, who tries to, 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 to defeat that or keep it from being a, 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 a viable um, contract or a viable document. But then you get downrange and you ask the Marines, the soldiers, the sailors, the airmen, 
who are in harm's way. Okay, so what happens when the bullets start flying? And every one of them said, you know, it's not so important to serve my country. We're fighting for each other. And if I look left and I look right, and I know I can trust my brother in arms, my sister in arms on my right, and I can trust him or her on my left, and I can trust their training, that increases our chances of coming home safely and alive. So so talk to that for a moment about how training, how you're training both physical with weapons as a scout with the gadgets, how you're training before you got into harm's way, how that helped you rise to the occasion when you needed to. Uh, that's, that's an excellent question. In fact, um, a lot of people in the civilian world, corporations, they want to know how can they get their uh, employees or their uh, subordinates or peers or superior, how they can get that type of uh, brotherhood and that type of family. And I have to say that it is the training, but it's the type of training. Through, her- through shared hardships, people will grow closer together. Um, the training we receive, train like you fight, you're, you're put out somewhere in the middle of nowhere. It's either super cold and, and you know, your canteen water freezes over and you're trying to stay awake in the middle of the night while you're shivering or it's, it's, it's extremely hot to where, you know, you're starting to get the heat rash where you get the pins and needles all over your skin and, and you're just trying to maintain and still perform at optimum level um, to get, I guess, a high score or, you know, to make your unit look good. And the funny thing is, is that no matter how bad you're feeling, no matter how bad, you, I guess you can say your life is sucking, you can look to your right and left and your brothers and sisters are feeling just as bad, but the fact that you're feeling like crap together brings you together. You know what they're going through because you've gone through the same thing. When you finally do go to combat, you, you know these people. They're your, they, they are your family. You, you blood, sweat, and tears, all of it you shed together. So in the end, it's, it's when you're there, you don't see the American flag. You don't see, you don't even have the right, you know, same television. You have uh, armed forces networks. You don't even understand what's going on back in the States except for uh, telegrams or letters or, or now they have emails and, uh, and uh, I guess video conferencing or something. But before that, and also in those very bad areas, all you have is each other. So you don't really, I don't know, you don't really, I mean, you care what, you know, baseball game is won or football game is won. But in the end, as long as uh, you and your brothers and sisters come home together, that's, that's the only real focus you have. Wow. Well put, brother. So this is uh, the VoiceAmerica.com radio network, the Influencers Channel, Dan Clark. My guest is Medal of Honor recipient Ty Carter. And I want to tee up our, our commercial break with you describing the day October 3rd, 2009, when your combat outpost Keating was overrun by 300 plus Taliban enemy fighters. Take us to that day, and uh, actually, when you were when you were standing in line, when you were at attention, and you saw the three trucks go by with the three flag draped coffins. Was your first assignment to uh, to COP Keating, or, 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 you know, take us back to how you ended up in Keating, and then the circumstances of that day? Uh, the first assignment was uh, my platoon. We were on OP Fritchie, Observation Post Fritchie. Now, this Observation Post was uh, supposed to be the Overwatch for a Combat Outpost Keating, 
problem is is that the mountain ranges were so high that, uh, and the fact that the outpost was on a spur, which is kind of like the, uh, if you look at your hand and the fist, you got the knuckles, which are the ridge line, the fingers are the spur. Um, we were there as overwatch, but we were, uh, we were on the high ground. There was only one or two spots that was above us, and the enemy tried to take advantage of that all the time. Most people think that, oh, you get in a firefight, and then, you know, um, you go home, or you're, the job's over. While we were there, uh, 361 Black Knight Troop, um, we would be in a firefight almost every day, sometimes, uh, sometimes twice a day, sometimes we'd go a week without one. But it was a constant uh, harassing fire. Now, that was, that was up on uh, Observation Post Fritchie. Uh, and that's Keating, and that's a photograph. And there's a photograph of you sitting there on the on the on the outlook on on the internet. I've seen that. You so that was your first assignment to overlook and basically protect the COP Keating. Then, yes, yes, it was uh, to use the high ground and support it. Now, the best way I can describe combat outpost Keating is um, you take you take the the. Excuse me, the back of a pencil, take the, the tip of the eraser, the pink part of the eraser, and then you take a, uh, a large glass or a large jar, and then you drop that eraser down to the bottom of the jar, and that's what Keating was, was the eraser, and that's how high the mountains were around us. It's basically um, everything was dominating terrain. It's, it was against everything that you're trained as a service member, whether you're Marine Corps, Army, Navy, you know, um, Air Force, it doesn't matter. You always want the high ground, but somebody, in their infinite wisdom, decided to put a base down at the bottom. When I first, uh, when we were assigned to Keating, we were switching out platoons, and uh, we patrolled down this mountain um, to get there. It took half a day to get there. That's how steep these mountains were. And as soon as I saw it, uh, my heart sank. Uh, there was no standoff, standoff meaning there's no distance between some type of um, organic structure or natural natural uh, thing, trees or rocks or river. There was no, there was no distance between that and where our, uh, our perimeter was, our wire or our HESCO barrier. And the fact that you can look up into the mountains and you can actually see battle positions for when the, uh, there was the Russian occupation. In fact, there was the shells of armor uh, along the side of the roads right next to our base. So the Russians were there before us, and now we're there, and they didn't do too well, and we didn't think we were going to do too well. But uh, this, is, this is our assignment, this is our mission, and then we just got to deal with it. So, so did, uh, you, did, you, did you vacillate from down in Keating and up on the ridge, or were you assigned on the ridge as protection, and then you got reassigned where they said, okay, now it's your turn to go down into COP Keating? Yes. Uh, it was our turn after about um, two and a half, three months to go down into Keating and uh, replace one of the platoons, and one of their platoons, the other platoons, went up to OP Fritchie, um, so they could do the overwatch part. And uh, we were down at Keating for about another two and a half months since, uh, before the October 3rd firefight. Now, the thing is, is that as soon as you get down there, uh, the rules are that no matter where you go, you had to wear your body armor. If you have to use the restroom or take a shower or go eat at, you know, the uh, little miniature cafeteria dining area, you always had your helmet, you always had your, your plate carrier, you always had your weapon ready to go um, in full gear. And that's just to use the restroom. 
the only time you were covered is when you were in the uh, the reinforced concrete buildings that uh, that we slept in or that we worked in. And that wasn't uh, really a rule. It was kind of like uh, you wanted to do it anyway because randomly you the dust around your feet would pop as somebody just shot at you from an elevated position. It, that was an everyday thing. But. Wow. And how many, how many of you were there at uh, COP Keating? At uh, the time of the October 3rd firefight, there was uh, between 52 and 54 Americans. And, of course, you heard the estimates. It was um, between three and 400 uh, Taliban insurgents in the high ground. So it, it was a, <laughs> basically the odds were around eight to one. And you were usually in a firefight almost every single day while you were at COP Keating. And then at 6 a.m., all hell broke loose on October 3rd. Teach us what happened. Well, um, because we were so used to waking up to a firefight, you know what? I can tell you if a coffee company would have a great advertising ploy if they would call their coffee, you know, morning firefight. Because it'll wake you up in a heartbeat. you got adrenaline running. Good luck getting back to sleep after that. Wow. But uh, that's, that's kind of how it went. So, um, you know, you hear the pop, 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 boom, boom, and you're like, okay, great. With me, I was dragging my feet because uh, I had uh, patrols the other day or the day before, and I was tired. But, uh, you know, I hear the, the machine gun fire. I hear the react uh, you know, sounds, and uh, so I'm, I'm getting out of bed. I'm wearing my uh, black PT shorts, my tan undershirt, and putting my boots on and putting my Kevlar on. I hear one of the sergeants, you know, he's running back and forth. We need somebody to man the 240 machine gun at El Res 2. And now El Res 2 is all the way on the other side of the post. Um, but since I was, you know, I'm healthy and uh, I can handle it, you know, I, I said I'll volunteer to do it. So I... I grab a couple of uh, uh, ammo bags or butt packs full of uh, 240 ammo. I've, I've already got it staged because this is the place I normally go, and I, I take care of that machine gun. So I'm grabbing that. You know, I'm throwing it over my shoulder. I got my M4, and I got my full kit on now, and uh, I head towards the door of the barracks, except something is different this time. As I'm reaching the door, I see bullet impacts in the dirt in front of the door and on the concrete wall just uh, uh, adjacent to the door. I get up to the door, and I'm thinking, wow, this is kind of intense. And just as, that, just as I think that, the wood uh, on the frame of the door splinters into my face as bullets are impacting the door frame. I take a step back. Now, I did that not because uh, I was afraid or anything, but I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I've got to do this at a running start. And then uh, kind of like a one, two, three, go, and then I started sprinting. And I turned the corners, I went around stuff, and... And I started to get tunnel vision as, uh, as I keep on running, I see impacts, you know, in front of me. And the more impacts I see, the faster I run. I got tunnel vision, so I can only feel the explosions going off to my left and right. And then I, I, I make this straight run to where um, the battle position is. Now, I'm not really paying attention to what's going on. I'm not firing up into the hills because that's not my job. My job is to support the uh, guard position with ammo or whatever they need. So that's all I'm focusing on. I get around the, uh, across the entrance control point, and I get around the refrigerator trailers where uh, LRAS 2 is. Now, LRAS is the, uh, 
the acronym for the uh, surveillance equipment that is mounted on an armored Humvee, which is surrounded by sandbags. Now, this surveillance system is excellent. You could, it's a thermal slash laser designator. It, it does everything. It's a big box with a big lens on it. So anyways, I get to the, uh, the battle position, and uh, Sergeant Gallegos was already on the 240 machine gun, and he was firing directly to my right, which I believe was um, west of, of everything. And then Sergeant Larson, he's in the vehicle next to the LRAS, and he's got the 50 cal, and he's firing directly south. And then as I'm looking, I see Mace, he's at the rear of the vehicle, and he's firing east. So, and these guys aren't just, you know, going pop, pop. They are full-on machine gun firing into these mountains. Now, I see that I'm not needed there, so I throw the, the ammo on the, uh, the top of the truck and uh, ask Sergeant Gallegos, because he was the, uh, the sergeant of the guard, I asked him what else he needed. He said that he yelled, of course, with a lot of, you know, interesting curse words in between, that, that they needed more ammo and lubricant. And this firefight had only been going on for a few minutes, but the, the machine guns were already starting to gum up and slow down. So as I'm, I'm opening the ammo bags and putting them on the truck, Mace is coming around the corner to my left, and he starts pulling magazines out of my kit. And remember, I'm not there to fight. I'm there to support. So I started pulling the rest of the magazines out of my kit, except for one in my rifle and, then of course, my last one in my kit, giving it to him. Now, I didn't really notice how bad the firefight was, and I didn't really focus in on it until I saw the look in Mace's face. I've never seen that look before in any movie. I've never read about that look in any book. I just saw the look of sheer terror and determination in one instant. And that's how I knew that this was the day. I mean, disregarding the sound, disregarding the impacts and explosions everywhere, this is the day that this is the hit. This is what we all planned for. This is what we all were worried about. So instantly, my adrenaline peaks up even more, and I am now in the mindset of that no matter what goes on, I don't care what happens, my job is to support these men at that position, and I will die trying if necessary. So I sprint back to the barracks where uh, my platoon sergeant is uh, is trying to calm everybody down. Because everybody's okay, yelling, let, you know, let me interrupt you for a second. When you say you sprinted, what I want everybody to know is that you carried ammunition 100 meters across open ground from near your barracks to a Humvee at the south battle position. That's 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 a hundred meters with bullets flying everywhere. What were you thinking, or maybe you weren't thinking? You just kicked it in gear because of your previous tra- training and your inherent desire to serve others and your brotherhood and your love and all the things that we were talking about suddenly leadership became automatic. You didn't have to think about it. You didn't, you, you weren't afraid. I loved how you said, wait a minute, I, I need to get, get a running start. One, two, three, here we go. But I want our it's, listeners uh, to re- to know that you were exposed. You were out in the open running for your life, but more importantly, you were running for your teammates, your, your brothers in arms lives, right? Well, the best way I can say it is that um, I had more fear of failing my brothers or having them get injured than I feared death or dismemberment. When I was running, I 
all I was thinking of was that a moving target would be harder to hit. I, the faster I, or the more impacts I saw, the faster I ran. The more times I felt explosions to the left and right or behind me or even in front of me. It's like getting slapped in the face or punched in the gut. I ran harder. So, yeah, it's... it's and you went back I and forth th- th- across that 100 meters of open ground. You traversed that back and forth three times. Is that true? To resupply the battalion position? Throughout the day, it was a total of go there, come back, go there, come back, go there, come back. So, yes, uh, when I crossed open ground, a um, total of six times. Oh and my gosh! It, I don't even. <laughs> and that was that was that was the main open ground. It's not even counting the times where um, I had to get out of the vehicle away from the armor while we were being fired upon, just to collect more ammo or checked on check on wounded or dead. But that's later in the firefight. We get back, or I get back to the, um, the barracks where we're at, and uh, Sergeant Hill is starting to sign people uh, where to go and when because. When he says we need a note, he when he calmed everybody down very loudly, he says we need to know who needs what. And I, when I caught my breath because I just got done sprinting, I I pretty much yelled, "Everyone needs everything." And that's when Sergeant Hill started assigning people. Okay, you do, you know, secondary battle position. You go support this battle position. You grab the ammo here, go there, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I went up to him, still breathing heavy, and I said. Uh, you know, LRAS-2 needs ammunition and lubricant. And he says, we don't have any more ammunition in the barracks uh, because we're actually planning on packing up and leaving the next day. But uh, hold on, I got something for you. So he goes into his room and he pulls out two cans of WD-40. Now, to most people, that they think, oh, yeah, that's, that's a good lubricant. But it's for the military, especially automatic weapons, you're not allowed to use it. It has a funny way of... Uh, bursting into flames when you apply it to hot weapons. But anything is better than nothing. So I've uh, got, uh, got those two cans of WD-40 and uh, once again sprinted, except this time it was to the ammo supply point. Problem was is that nobody was out there with a, a key to unlock the doors. So I, I put down the two cans of WD-40 and I put a few rounds into the base of the lock and tore the door open, went inside found out it was the wrong one. This is where they kept all the explosives and the claymores and everything else, and that's probably one spot I don't want to be in a firefight. If something hits inside there, they won't have anything to clean up. <laughs> so I stepped out of there, go to, <laughs> I stepped out of there, go to the next door, and about this time, my uh, section leader comes up, and he's like, what are you doing? I says, I'm getting ammo. He says, you can't get ammo, the door's locked. And I says, I know, I'm going to shoot it off. And he's like, well, you allowed to do that? And I was like, oh, I did it to the other one. So he's like, okay, no problem. So this is, this is all while we're hugging the walls and bullets are landing around us. And you see the smoke trails of rocket-propelled grenades flying through the air. Hmm. So I, I raise the rifle. I don't even look down the sights, and I squeeze the trigger. Now, this must have been luck or fate or whatever, but it hit the, uh, the bar of the lock and cut it with one bullet. Now, that surprised me. So I, I, you know, undo it, pull the lock off, and I do a little happy dance. And, yeah, that's a sniper right there. What's up? You know, kind of, you know, pat myself on the back. I open the door and step inside. And when I step inside, I get slammed in the back, and there's a large explosion. Um, as I kind of collect my senses, I'm actually uh, trying to turn over, but somebody is on my leg. I pick him up, and it turns out that his 
soon as I went into the door, uh, somebody was right behind me, and then a mortar exploded right at the base of the door. It uh, knocked us both down. He was uh, peppered pretty bad with shrapnel. So I picked him up. I asked him if he was okay. He said he didn't know. He had a major concussion, so he didn't really know what was going on anyway. I could see the uh, the holes in the back of his legs and his arms. Um, they It looked like a uh, little, I don't know, it's, it, whatever happens in real life is not what they show in the movies, I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. When uh, hot metal enters the body, it, it singes and chars as it goes in, and it doesn't start bleeding until you start moving and break those um, those, those carterized wounds. So I was able to hand him over to the uh, section leader, and they were able to take him to the aid station. So I grabbed my ammo, and then I stepped out the door, picked up the cans of WD-40, and as I'm about to sprint across the entrance control point to LRAS-2, I get stopped by my section leader, and he tells me, you can't go there. And I says, no, you don't understand. The LRAS-2 really needs this. And he's like, you can't go out there. It's suicide. You'll die. I says, you don't understand. If I don't get it there, you know, if, if, if a battle position falls, possibly the whole camp falls, so I need to get out there. He then looks to the ground and nods his head, yes, as though he's about to, or he'll never see me again, almost like he doesn't want to look at me. So then mm-hmm. I go. But this time, I'm not, you know, sprinting straight across. I think they kind of saw the path I was taking because this time the explosions were extremely close. So I'd find cover, and then an explosion would happen within a few feet of me, and then i keep running, find cover, and keep running. And then in an open spot, I, I ran in a zigzag. Now, I didn't do that because I'm trying to dodge bullets. I did that because the concussions to my left and right were physically moving my body as I'm trying to run in a straight line. Finally get to LRAS-2, and uh, nobody's firing. I can't see anybody. So I run up, and I open the door, and they're all inside. I hear the words, you know, get inside. A sniper's got us pinned down. Or get out of here, get inside. Sniper's got us pinned down. So I got inside and put the M down, and they immediately asked me if I had any more M4 rounds because they were all out. So I pull the last magazine out of my kit, and I hand it to the sergeant so he can start distributing ammo. So I'm in this vehicle, and and this vehicle is getting rocked. But we were lucky enough to have sandbags there. The sandbags were absorbing the... um, the strikes or the hits from the side, especially from the armor-piercing stuff. So the sandbag saved our butt. As the Sergeant Gallegos is trying to figure out what to do, he's on the radio, my door opens, and there's Sergeant Martin. He's like, hey, I heard you guys needed ammo. So, of course, he said the same thing, get in or get out of here. And Sergeant Martin pauses to think about it. Now, this is my door, and it's open, so we're both exposed. So I don't even ask. You know, I grab a hold of him, and I pull him into the vehicle and get the door shut. And he's very polite, you know, as he's crawling over me, oh, excuse me, you know, sorry. Um, and then he lays across the gunner's platform. Um, problem with the gunner's platform is a piece of the uh, generator that exploded from a, a rocket-propelled grenade uh, was jamming the turret cover open, so it was exposed straight up. Diagos uh-huh. um, is on the radio uh, trying to figure out an evacuation plan, uh, Sergeant Larson's in the driver's seat, and Mace is to my left, and he's hunched over. I'm assuming he's already been injured because he's not talking. He's just bent over, and, and um, Sergeant Martin's across the gunner's platform. Well, I can't really describe the feeling. All I remember is what it sounded like. Um, very metallic, very loud, um, very piercing. 
apparently a rocket-propelled grenade hits the inside of the open turret and sprays shrapnel and concussion throughout the vehicle. I don't know if I lost consciousness, but I do know that I lost a little bit of memory because uh, it felt like I was waking up in the morning, kind of groggy. But um, all I remember thinking is, you know, I'm, I'm imagining I'm in my bed thinking, wow, that was one heck of a nightmare. And then my bed would jiggle and I start to blink my eyes and, and then the sounds started to come back, the high-pitched ringing, the, the cursing, the somebody yelling at Burns. I'm thinking, this isn't a nightmare. This is actually happening. That was, <laughs> that was a horrible feeling to wake up believing you were in a nightmare and the nightmare is actually real. So my memory started coming back and I remembered going back and forth. I remembered that you were in the situation and, and because of that uh, rocket propelled grenade that, you know, sprayed everybody, Gallegos made the decision to exfil the position. Even though we didn't have enough support to do it or cover to do it, he made the decision for us to leave. So Sergeant Larson and I volunteered to stay back for the bounty overwatch. So we would, you know, hold our weapons up and fire at the bad guy while uh, Gallegos, Martin, and Mace uh, made it to a covered position, and then they would fire on the bad guys so that we could move. So it was like a, a, a football ready break, and then we all jumped out of the vehicle. As soon as uh, Gallegos got around to grab Mace, and as Mace and Martin were in the same area between us and where the generators were, or the, um, the vehicle and the generator, it was like a 10-foot-wide space, kind of like a hallway, um, everything turns to yellow and black. Like five or six rocket-propelled grenades land amongst us. I remember falling to the ground. I, um, when the dust, yellow dust cleared, um, I could see Mace was leaning up against the vehicle, and uh, I was leaning up against the tire seat on my butt, and I had to remind myself that, hey, I, I still got to provide cover for these guys. So then I, I get up, and I you know, take a knee and start shooting towards uh, a, a guy who's like less than 20 yards from us. I'm thinking, what? What's going on? The guy dies behind a bush, so I put a few rounds in the bush, but this was inside our wire. They so were they already, in our home. They've, they've, overrun the, they've overrun the base now. They, well, I don't know about overrun, but they definitely penetrated, and now they're amongst us. So uh, I fire that way. You know, I'm, I'm trying to do what I need to do. Mace, uh, Mace is being almost carried by a guy. Ghost Martin has already turned the corner. And as soon as that happens, I yell at Sergeant Larson and say, hey, Larson, uh, they're clear. We need to move. And then Larson is no longer firing up into the hills. He's actually firing directly into the heart of the compound. As he's doing that, at the corner of my eye, I see Gallegos coming around the corner. He's got bullets impacting all around him. One hits his leg. He turns, and he starts firing at these guys. And then uh, the rounds walk up his body, and he falls. Mm. And then... After that, Sergeant Larson says, get back in the vehicle. I just took out a few of the guys over here. Uh, so the exfil failed. So here we are, Sergeant Larson and myself in this vehicle by ourselves. Now, I didn't know it, but I found out later that if Gallegos hadn't have stayed there and continued to fire, he would not have distracted the enemy long enough for Sergeant Larson to hit him with blanking fire. So the man, the, I guess you can say the father of our little group right there, made the decision for us to exfil. Then he took the responsibility by doing everything he could to protect us, and he died doing that. Wow, brother. So we're starting to, 
wind down our time, and I want to make sure we get to everything that you want to cover in this amazing heroic story. Um, so let's shift to, in your mind, what's, what, what is the most important part? Not that the rest of the story is not important. What, what do we need to hear from you, Ty, about the rest of this battle? All right. Perfect. No problem. Um, well, I was getting right to that. Um, when Gaius went down, uh, Mace got more injured. And uh, as we were in the vehicle, uh, Mace, uh, I saw Mace coming around the corner on his elbows, dragging his legs. I asked Sergeant Larson if I can go get him, but I was ordered not to. Um, so I had to basically, for the next 30 to 45 minutes, watch this young man bleed out just out of reach. I mean, he was only, you know, 15, 20 yards away, but he could have been across an ocean with the amount of incoming fire we had. Um, eventually I was able to get permission from Sergeant Larson to go get him and then bring him back. Um, I also had to leave the vehicle again to find Gallegos' radio because that whole time we had no communication. Uh, the enemy was inside the compound. Some of them were even carrying our weapons that they pulled off of our own, our own fallen. So we didn't know if we were the last ones alive and we had to establish communications. So we got communications. And then Sergeant Larson and uh, the rest of everybody else coordinated a massive cover fire so that Larson and I could bring Mace back to the aid station. And uh, that's, that's basically what, um, what the citation reads. The other stuff, I mean, it doesn't really talk about uh, me cutting down the tree in the middle of a firefight, but that's, I guess, that's there for when my book finally comes out. Um, from that action, from that day... I thought that we did excellent. We lost, we lost seven men, but I believe Sergeant Larson and I accomplished the impossible. We were able to save a life in combat. However, that night, um, the first sergeant started whispering that uh, Mace, the uh, guy that we worked so hard to save, died on the operating table. And that's, that's what crushed me. That's what made me feel like I was a failure, that I was worthless, that I was useless. And that was pretty much the, uh, the, uh, the post-traumatic stress right there. Wow. Now, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, most people are like, oh, you're a, you're a Medal of Honor recipient. You're a hero. And I was like, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm going to have to agree to disagree. But I wear a memorial bracelet on my right hand or my right wrist, and that has the eight names that are heroes. Gallegos is a hero. Martin's a hero. Mace is a hero. Scusa, he was my weekend uh, shooting buddy. He's a hero. Griffin, he was my roommate. And you've got Hart. He was one of the guys that uh, volunteered on a suicide mission to come save us. You've got um, Thompson, or Thomas, sorry. Thomas, he, he was one of the first to go down. He ran out to uncover the mortar pit to uh, uh, provide, you know, cover fire to help subdue the enemy. All these guys, you know, they, they're the heroes. I'm, I'm just somebody who was recognized and represents the firefight by carrying a medal. And uh, every year on October 3rd, I, I make sure that I go through my little ceremony of uh, out loud saying who these individuals were and what they did to help save my life and the lives around them. And then I commit alcohol or I commit a, a drink to the earth kind of a thing. And that's, 
that's how I uh, that's how I mourn them, and that's how I remember them. Wow. To fill in a blank before we uh, before we conclude on how people can get a hold of you and support you. Remember uh, when, yeah. the, when the commanding, uh, when the commander's office or whatever you call it was under fire, I mean, burst into fire, there was a tree that, that was on fire. Tell us that story. That's part of the most amazing part of your, of your courage and your bravery that day, in my mind. All right. Uh, I'll, I'll try to go quick then because I don't want to, I don't want you to go over on time. So um, after the incident with Mace in the uh, El Raz 2, I was in a sniper position as a spotter, and the Latvian Special Forces guys, the guys that were training the Afghan National Army, he was the shooter. During that time, the rest of the compound started burning down. Our barracks was on fire. It was catching the headquarters building on fire. And in between there, there was a tree that was catching fire. The problem is, is that the tree limbs were touching the aid station. Inside the aid station, you had several critically wounded individuals. So uh, my platoon sergeant shows up behind me with a chainsaw. He's like, hey, Carter. This chainsaw, can you cut down that tree? So I checked the fuel, I checked the oil, I revved it up, and I was like, sure, where do you want it? So he says, well, can you put it, excuse me, sorry, can you put it parallel to the barrack? I was like, no problem. So I slung my weapon, I put on some eye pro, and I went out there and I started cutting this tree. Now, this tree is about two feet in diameter, so it's not a small tree. So and, then, and, you're, and, you're in the, and you're in the middle of a firefight. I'm in the middle of a firefight standing between two burning buildings underneath a burning tree. So <laughs> I'm trying to make these cuts perfect because I don't want it to land on anybody. And now you got to bear in mind, I've never done this before. I've never cut down a burning tree in between two burning buildings. So <laughs> as I'm cutting it, it starts to tilt. And I'm thinking, okay, it's going the right way. But as it's tilting, while it's still on its stump, it decides to pivot. Now when it's pivoting, it's pivoting... 90 degrees. So as it falls, it falls 90 degrees in the wrong direction. Now, I'm embarrassed, but for some reason I hear cheering because I think the tree or people were cheering the fact that tree crushed the headquarters building, and that's where all the higher-up officers hung out. But the cool <laughs> thing was is that, <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. I don't know. The cool uh... thing is that the force of the falling tree that crushed the headquarters building, actually put out the fire on the building and on the tree itself, therefore saving the aid station. But I'm still so embarrassed it fell in the wrong spot because, you know, I didn't account for updrafts or lean or anything. I was trying to, you know, not get shot or burnt. But uh, because I was so embarrassed and the tree fell in the wrong spot, I climb up onto the tree that's up on the building and I start clearing the limbs so if it does start up again, it doesn't, you know, cause flame to the other buildings and also to clear a pathway for uh, individuals to get to the aid station. So I'm up there, I'm sawing, I'm getting it done, and then my platoon starting walks out and he starts yelling. He's like, hey, Carter, I'd like you to know you're doing a great job, but you're the most exposed person out here. I'd really like you to come down. So I'm thinking, I'm almost done, Sergeant, because I want to fix my mistakes. And that's when he says, Carter, get the boop down now. And I was like, okay, Roger, Sergeant. And so I climbed down and, and I, I returned to my sniper position at the aid station. And uh, when the night falls is when they're able to land the helicopters so that uh, we, can get, um, uh, we can get relief or quick reaction for it. But, yeah, Letterman loved that story. I don't know why everybody thinks it's so funny. I thought it was embarrassing. No, nah, you're awesome. All in the middle of a firefight. So, so you are, you, with, with the, 
the communication still left in 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 COP Keating. You were able to call in some 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 air superiority. I think a B one bomber came in. No, that was maybe afterwards. But but the bombs they dropped to help you finish the firefight were so close. Weren't they like two hundred yards away from where oh, you were or something? And teach us about were, that. They quickly. were dropping. They were dropping five hundred pound bombs just outside the wire, so less than a hundred meters. I remember uh, the whoever was on the the loud. Being loud, I guess, they says, get low because it's going to be big. So then I put, I pulled down my spotting scope and my rifle, and here I'm leaning up against these sandbags, and as these bombs drop, it feels like somebody's kicking me in the chest. It's, it's so powerful, your, your, your teeth wiggle an itch. And uh, the, the dust on the sandbags is jumping six inches, and they, they're just laying waste to whatever's out there. So who was able to call in close air support to help you end this, this firefight? Well, the uh, the generators were down, so they had to use the um, the the classic radios, and they were able to communicate uh, through, I guess, bouncing signal off places. I'm not a comm guy. I don't know. I, I'm just a, a you know a good old fashioned trigger puller. But uh, they were able to call them in uh, within a couple of hours. Air support finally shows up. So for the last ten hours of the firefight, from sun up to sundown. We had air support, but when air support came, they were like, we need more help, and then more air support came and more air support. So it got to a point where we were able to uh, subdue the enemy enough to push them back out of the compound and then retrieve our wounded and fallen. Wow, what a story time. So President Barack Obama awarded Ty Carter with the Medal of Honor in a White House ceremony on August 26, 2013. And the following day, Ty Carter was inducted into the Pentagon Hall of Heroes. I've been there. I honor you, brother. Tell us how we can support you, how we can get a hold of you as a speaker for our corporations, for our associations, for our communities. Yes, thank you. I have a website. It's tymcartermoh.com. So it's it's my name and then medalofhonor.com. Uh, that's also on my Instagram. I have a public Facebook page. Pretty much all of it says just, you know, timecardmoh.com. Um, there is a uh, event request form on the website. There's also a gallery. There's a bio. Um, I've done a lot of volunteer work for nonprofits, especially uh, the ones that deal with um, the, uh, the, the, the unseen wounds of war, uh, mostly uh, post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury. Um, I've been trying to get rid of the D from post-traumatic stress disorder ever since even before I received the award. The best way I can say it is that post-traumatic stress is an instinctive reflexive response of your body and mind to recall a traumatic incident in order to avoid repeating it. Um, and no point in that does it stay combat or combat. In fact, the most common form of PTS is a car accident. So if you have people around you that are hurting, they need to understand that this is just a stepping stone. You don't have a disorder. It's not a disease. This isn't something that is cured. It's, it's basically, it's our instincts on how we learn and grow. And as soon as we can get the public to, to understand that, as soon as we can get the media to stop um, chastising and demonizing individuals with uh, uh, post-traumatic stress, then we can improve. We can improve the quality of life of uh, our veterans, of our law enforcement, of our fire departments, of our paramedics. And, of course, just anyone and everyone who's experienced a trauma in their life. 
I totally agree. So that's Ty Carter. I want everyone to Google his name. Make sure you look at his interview on David Letterman. You can see how handsome, how dignified Ty Carter is, how articulate, and what a great sense of humor he has. What a part part of your story that we didn't have time to get to is how you found out that you were being honored as a recipient of the Medal oh, of Honor. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's just amusing. I was amusing. on vacation. <laughs> uh, no, that just kills me. I wish we had time, but please, with my uh, audience as my witness, may I invite you back. I want to talk more about the things you've learned, especially with post-traumatic stress and how we can really get involved. You're just one of my heroes, brother. I wish you well. I, I, I honor you and your family and your commitment to your daughter. I just I love everything about you, especially the things we didn't even have a chance to talk about. So, ladies and gentlemen, please contact Ty Carter, Ty M. Carter, Hull, uh, I mean, a Medal of Honor, M-O-H. And, uh, Dot com. Yeah. Dot com. God bless you, brother. God bless your family. Thank and we'll, you. uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk off air in just a little while. This is All Dan right. Clark, VoiceAmerica.com Influencers Channel. You can find me at DanClark.com. Push receive free gifts and training and join my tribe because I take a lot of pride in being friends and colleagues with superstar Ty Carter. God bless our military. God bless America. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you so much and have a wonderful, wonderful seven days. Thanks for being part of the show. Be sure to join Dan Clark next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, for another edition of The Art of Significance on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Remember, you too can achieve the level beyond success.